Welcome back into the Trojan Talk podcast. We are coming at you a little bit later in the week than usual this week. It's been a busy one. As always, I am Ryan Young, publisher of Trojansports.com, and I am joined by my familiar co-host, our Trojansports.com analyst, the former USC quarterback, Max Brown, for his weekly appearance on the podcast. We went a little shorter with Max this time, though, because I want to get couple of voices on today. We do have him talking about the Fresno State matchup. We also had a good discussion about the Stanford game. We had a little fun with it. I asked Max for his favorite Lincoln Riley play call from last week, and we will do that each and every week. That will be a new weekly feature for us on the show. After our first segment with Max Brown, we bring on Adam Grossbar of the Orange County Register. USC beat writer, good friend of mine, good friend of the show. He's had some good stories this season, feature story on Shane Lee. We both wrote about Max Williams this week and just wanted to uh, talk with him about a few of the interesting individual stories and, and just some other stuff. We just kind of bounced around to a bunch of different USC football topics, but it was good to have Adam on the show. And those two are our show. Not much more to tell you at the top here. Uh, obviously, excitement for the home game against Fresno State Saturday night in the Coliseum. Intrigue on my part to see what the crowd turnout looks like in the Coliseum. I do think at some point this season we will see a return to maybe not peak Coliseum crowds, but a return to what USC football Saturday should look like. I'm confident we're going to get there. I don't know if it will happen this week, but you are talking about the number seven team in the country uh, arguably the best offense in the country. And there's just a lot for USC fans to be excited about and to be invested in. And expectations should be sky high right now. Mine mine were pretty high to begin the season. They're, yeah, they're probably a little bit higher now. They are. But anyways, no need to delay. Let's get to the show with Max Brown and Adam Grossbard. Here we go. All right, we're back on the Trojan Talk podcast, now talking about the number seven ranked USC Trojans after their 41-28 win at Stanford. Max, how goes it? It goes well. It's crazy that uh, 12 months ago we were talking after our head coach, Clay Helton, got fired, and here we are 12 months later with the, the number seventh ranked team in the country somehow, or not somehow, I know exactly how, but Man, Trojans look good, look explosive, and lots to dive into. Well, you know what? Since you started with that, I'm going to go right there. I wrote my column after the game. Actually, I put it up on Sunday because I wanted to go back and rewatch and really break down the first half of offense. But Lincoln Riley's comment after the game, I don't know if he meant to be this on the head about it, but it was like the perfect way to sum it up. He said, I mean, just look at 12 months ago. Look at 12 months ago. This is a good Stanford team, and a lot's changed. Obviously, 12 months ago, Stanford came into the Coliseum, beat USC 42-28, and ended the Clay Helton era. USC wins by almost the same score this year at Stanford, 41-28. And, of course, uh, Clay Helton was busy with Georgia Southern beating Nebraska and and, uh, having some success down there, so that was good to see for him. I don't know if Lincoln meant to directly – channel the the end of the previous era which was 12 months ago a day short of a calendar year but when you think about it, like you said it's no usc fan at that time not one not a single usc fan at that time could have imagined a year later being number seven in the country and having maybe 
maybe the most exciting offense in the country. It's just crazy. Just building off that, what, what struck you the most from the performance Saturday? Yeah, I mean, just to piggyback off that uh, that comment, I mean, yes, credit Lincoln Riley and what he's done and the energy brought in by this staff and, you know, a changing of the guard, but especially in the Stanford matchup, I mean, the transfer portal, man, on full display. And I, I drastically underestimated the impact and the possibilities of the portal, but, I mean, you look at that game, I mean, Transfers all across the board. Gentry, Blackman, Die, Williams, Williams again, uh, Jordan Addison. Like, you know, the ability to entirely flip a roster. And I know I'm preaching to the choir with SC fans listening, but it really hit me. Um, I caught the game after calling the Washington game on, on Saturday, sitting on my couch, and you're literally every single guy felt like that made a play or uh, was, you know, highlighted by. Kirk Herbstreet in the, in the broadcast was a transfer and, and credit Lincoln for getting those guys. But, you know, just over the course of 12 months, or even nine months since, since Lincoln's been hired, absolutely ridiculous. And, and credit all these guys for, for, for falling into place. You said at the top that everyone knows how we got here, even though it's surprising when you look back a year ago, but it's easy to explain and it starts with that talent that was brought in. You, you don't do this without the likes of Jordan Addison and Mario Williams and Caleb Williams and Travis Dye and all the guys you mentioned. But you also don't do it without Lincoln Riley and just, you know, some next-level offense that seems so far advanced from what we were talking about last year. And that's, that's not intended to, to knock Graham Harrell or anybody. But remember last year the talking points were, could they possibly go under center on, on third and short and fourth and short? Uh why can't they score in the red zone? Why do they keep saying they, they just can't execute? I mean, those were our, our narratives last year, and it just seems crazy uh, in hindsight because now we're, we're breaking down these elaborate play designs where uh, half the team is, is downfield blocking uh, in, you know, in unison at the right time. I'm just amazed that he's got – this all on the same page so quickly and, and maybe to him it doesn't feel like it, it is all the way there but compared to what we saw last year this is such a more organized and an efficient and well-executed team than we saw last year and, and that is the most striking thing to me yeah the efficiency is striking to me and just the combination of explosiveness and efficiency usually in football at the college level when you get one you don't get the other right if you're having big plays down the field you don't also have an extremely efficient quarterback throwing with 74 percent completion or whatever the final number is like the fact that Caleb Williams is able to take the deep shots when they're there and then also stay on schedule whether it's with his feet or checking the ball down like that's a lethal combo and it just it's funny because schematically they're trying to do the same stuff they did last year, or at least comparable. It's not the exact same, but the way it's not always kind of what you're calling, but it's when you're calling it, obviously how you're executing it, but when you're calling it, how you're sequencing the last play with the current play with the next play, that's where the true art is with Lincoln Riley. And it just feels like guys are playing so much more free, so much more open, so much more confident. And, you know, that's a ripple effect, too. You, you go out there, you ball out against Stanford, and then now you have receivers not thinking as much. They're playing faster. Offensive line has more confidence. It all flows together. Yeah, I mean, it, it. every drive in the first half looked easy. They scored on 
uh, touchdowns on five straight drives to open the game. Not even a third down in that stretch. No third downs, just like clockwork every time. Boom, 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 boom. And, of course, you can say the same for Stanford, which had its way with USC's defense aside from the turnovers. And we'll get into all that, and we'll give a very fair critique of everything. But, but the offense is what jumps out, and we're going to have a new segment each week that I know Max is excited for, I'm excited for. It's going to be every week our favorite Lincoln-Riley play call. And Max will probably have a lot more interesting things to say than I do, but this week I, I did put a lot of thought into it. Uh, let's go right to that and start there, and I'll let you have the first cut at it. Max, what was your favorite play call from Saturday? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to go A, A and B, and one I'm going to nerd out with, and the other one is more, uh, more big picture, high level. Uh, I'll start big picture, high level. The, the first play call to start the second half was was awesome. I mean, that the, the deep post to Jordan Addison, you're down up at halftime, and, and just to give our listeners some backstory, like I, I can envision Lincoln Riley meeting with his staff at halftime, saying what can we – what can we pick them apart with? What look do we know or, or what call do we have in our offensive playbook where we know the defensive look that we're going to get? What, How can we take advantage? What's a shot call that we've installed on a Monday that we need to get to? It's, it's highlighted on the, uh, the call sheet type of thing. That, that, uh, that corner post by Jordan Addison to uh, get after the, 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 the middle free middle field free safety and uh, and and punish him. I love that call for, you know, the scheme, the throw, the execution. How easy it felt. Like those are the plays that felt hard in years past. That it was you know few and far between. And just I think I'm the uh, Trojan fans are, are falling in love with Jordan Addison, rightfully so. But I was still a little skeptical the past couple of weeks of hey, was it a product last year of you know having Kenny Pickett as your quarterback? Was it a product of maybe being the sole featured guy in a pit offense, pit receiver room where you may be the only guy, how how would he transition to SC? That dude's an absolute stud. It's a big time route. I love that play call. And then the second one, it's uh, it's much more nerdy. It'll, I have a breakdown on it coming out this week on my Twitter, but it's a whole shot um, to Brennan Rice uh, early in the first half, and I love the call because you can sh- you can see how Lincoln Riley is just on the next level relative to the defensive coordinator. Stanford, the TV copy, and Herbie were like, oh, it's a miscommunication by Stanford's defense. It was not a miscommunication. It was Lincoln Riley being the, uh, a step ahead. Stanford tries to disguise a coverage. Lincoln Riley calls calls the uh, cover two answers on both sides, knowing that Stanford's disguising. Caleb Williams recognizes it and throws a whole shot alert in there. I know I'm getting way nitty gritty on a podcast format, but it shows Lincoln Riley's play calling ability. And then Caleb Williams, he makes things look easy. It's not always easy. He's recognizing things and playing at a high level for a true sophomore to, to pull the trigger there um, was awfully impressive because just looks easy. It's not, it's way harder than it, uh, than given credit for. And check out that breakdown here uh, later this week on my feed. Absolutely. Our, our listeners uh, know well your, your prowess in the breakdown, so we will definitely pump that up when it comes out. I love it. I, I love that those are two that I would not have thought of at all, and that's exactly the value of having your, your advanced quarterback eye on things. Mine is maybe a little more obvious choice, but before I get to it, let me ask you a question about Jordan Addison and that, that, those post routes. What, what would inhibit or, or prevent 
Lincoln Riley from calling like eight of those shots a game because it seems like a very high percentage play with Jordan Addison? It's a good question. I mean, the short answer is, you know, uh, the defender cheating it or, 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 you know, having the SC's number. But, no, I think that, that's something that you you rep a bunch, and that's a route where, hey, if the defense does cheat in one direction, you can then go the other direction. I mean, instead of doing a corner post, you do a post-corner type of thing. Moving forward, I'd expect defenses to try to get more hands-on. Mario Williams and Jordan Addison, obviously they're not big guys, and so if you can't get in their chest, that's how you would disrupt the timing for a deep ball. I think also you have to get exotic with your blitz packages and try to heat things up on a, on a Caleb Williams so you don't have time for those routes to, to progress. I mean, those are all the wrinkles we saw a little bit um, in years past with Graham Harrell, whether you heat things up on the quarterback, whether you drop eight and have more guys in coverage, mix it up, keep SC's defense off balance. I mean, the reality is when you give a look to Lincoln Riley where he knows exactly what to expect, um, that's where he'll tear you, tear you apart. And also, I'd expect Fresno State and Oregon State to do this in the weeks to come. You saw a lot against Stanford, Caleb Williams being able to go to the line of scrimmage and then look back, and then Lincoln Riley would just be able to call his favorite play call, like easy easy money, literally no crowd noise, just change the play on the spot. I would expect defenses moving forward to do a, a check with me. So when, when SC checks with Lincoln Riley, the defense will check with their defensive coordinator and also mix up their call and have some sort of a cat and mouse game. Because when you allow Lincoln to just stand on the sideline, know exactly what you're going to line up in and call his favorite play, like you're going to get torched every time. Along those lines of, of the cat and mouse game, the Travis Dye 27 yard touchdown run uh, through, as I called it in my column, a biblical parting of the ways up the middle where he laughed after the game. And we asked, what'd you see? He goes, nothing but the end zone. (laughs) So, um, but we, we asked, uh, we asked Caleb uh, what you saw on that, on that audible and checking out of that. And he goes, no, nah, that was, that was a big dog. That was, that was coach. And, and Lincoln goes, no, nah, I was Caleb, but uh, obviously Riley saw the edge blitz and, and, and checked into that run. And, and, and I just goes right up the middle. Let me ask you about that. Who was the best coach that you had coordinator coach uh, in terms of helping you pre-snap and, and calling in something from the sideline and, and picking up on things like, like that? Yeah, candidly, when you ask that question, my high school football coach. There you go. <laughs> uh, Matt Taylor. Shout out Matt Taylor. I saw him last week, man. We were uh, we were elite at that stuff back in the day. And you know, it's different when you have the when you have the no huddle capabilities, and that's part of your DNA. Obviously, that's 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 what that offense is for to be able to check with me. And so, you know, I didn't have that with Lane Kiffin, but I'll say this: Lane Kiffin was the best offense of mine that I had been around. I mean. His offense is entirely different now, a decade later, than when I had him. I mean, he was pro-style back then. Now he's no huddle wide open. But what he was able to see, what he was able to adjust, what he was able to scheme was awfully impressive. But, you know, Lincoln Riley's on next level with that. You mentioned that one play right there. I mean, I don't know how you defend it. I mean, you're Stanford's defense. You're getting torched downfield. You decide to put more guys in coverage. The box is light on one play. USC's able to catch you off guard, quickly check to a little outside zone run play. You wash the linebackers out. You cut up the middle of the field. Like, there's just so much pressure that SC can put can put on you. And, man, it's awfully hard to, to counter if you're a defense going up against Lincoln Riley. Well, uh, for all we talked about, I still have not gotten to my favorite play call of the game, and I'll get to it now. It was 
So obviously, you know, the 75-yard bomb that Jordan Addison was maybe the prettiest play of the day and just, you know, perfect timing, just, you know, one of those plays that just brings the whole stadium and crowd to its feet, um, even on the road because there were a lot of USC fans there. It was a very loud USC contingent. But, no, my favorite was the 22-yard touchdown to Jordan Addison where they faked the handoff left to Travis Dye. Jonah Monheim and Justin Dietrich even pull to the left, and it's so convincing that Dye, I think, gets tackled uh, on the play, even though he didn't have the ball, and, and most of the Stanford defense jumps to that side initially. Caleb Williams then shoots it out to the right, to the right hash to Addison, to set up the, I guess we call it a tunnel screen, and it requires pretty much four blocks to be executed exactly perfectly. And that remains what I'm just most impressed with is just how on the same page and locked in these guys are. So I'll go over how I broke it down. If you have anything else to add, by all means, please uh, correct me or whatever. But uh, on the outside, Mario Williams immediately seals cornerback Caillou Blue Kelly and takes him out of the play. Brett Nealon takes off and knows exactly who he's going for, and it's safety Patrick Fields. And th- th- there's no hesitation. Who do I get? Who do I pick up? It was so well-planned and designed that I guess when they saw that look, they knew that this play would work against it. And Nealon goes straight for Patrick Fields, gets him out to kind of seal off that right side of the lane. Bobby Haskins sprints over immediately from the snap. So as the, as the right side's pulling to the left, Haskins at left tackle just takes off and gets safety Jonathan McGill to kind of close out that left side of the lane. And then the last one is, is Andrew Voorhees at left guard. He got kind of held up just a little bit longer than maybe planned on his initial block, and he was racing over to get the linebacker, Jacob Mangum Farrar, and he, he was a tick late, but the linebacker was already behind ass and, and really out of the play. But to have all those pieces come together in perfect execution is what made that play happen, and that's so impressive to me. But it was every play of the game. The commitment to blocking is just so clear. On Lake McCree's touchdown, both Addison and, and uh, Mario Williams – block to the end of the play downfield to, to make sure that uh, McCree had a free lane to the end zone. And it's clearly been just drilled into this team. We asked Mario Williams that after the game, and he goes, if you don't block, you don't get the ball. So, of course, yeah, it's, it's, it's important. And that's just been drilled home, and it's resonated. And those are areas where I see just such a stark difference from last year where I just don't think that that existed last year. My favorite part, I love that run play. I uh retweeted it on my Twitter uh, this morning, actually. The best part about that is that all that action that you just described, it's called GT counter. If they just handed the ball off, it looks the exact same from the offensive line. Mm. The only difference is that, you know, it's just a play fake and they have a screen tag. But from all five offensive linemen, it looks exactly like a Lincoln-Riley staple GT counter. It's like, it's so hard to defend as a defensive coordinator and so creative by Lincoln to have you know, it's a complex run scheme. I mean, all those guys you mentioned, a lot of moving pieces. You have the guard and the tackle from the right pulling around, left side washing down. Like, but if you stopped it before, you know, late, uh, before Caleb Williams pulls the ball, it looks awfully similar uh, to the run scheme. And they just, you know, that's what it's, that's what play calling is all about: tying plays together. How do you uh, how do you uh, you know keep the defense off balance? Give us your perspective on, on how many times you think that they had to rep that over the spring and summer to have the trust that it would be executed uh, to the way it was. 
a lot. Um, no, it's a great point. Great question. I mean, that's in the, I, I bet they didn't even have it mastered after spring ball. I bet you're still working with that in fall camp. Um, but that's the thing is when you know the GT counter run scheme is part of your identity, which that's what Lincoln was all about at, uh, at uh, Oklahoma. He popularized that run, that, that run game where he was a, he was a pillar in uh, popularizing that run play. You'll see it all around college football. But when you know that's part of your, your DNA, you have to have counters off of that. So I'm sure they repped it a bunch, and I'm sure it's something we'll see uh, a bunch this year. And, like, there's so much more you can do off of that, right? You can do that same action, fake the screen, have a vertical down the field. You can, you know, the, the list goes on and on, and I'm sure Lincoln has, uh, you know, I saw um, a team do it. You uh, fake fake the run, fake the screen, and then have like another screen to the running back after he gets fake. Like, there's so many wrinkles you can do, and I'm sure Lincoln has them all up his sleeve. Wow, that's that's fun, and I, I've never really thought this deeply about offensive football, but all season I'm, I'm going to find myself rewatching the game and, and really trying to get into Lincoln's head and and see what he's thinking there, and, and that's why we'll uh, really really benefit from having you on each week to, to like that. All that stuff was I hadn't thought of. I just thought that was the play call was to, was to do that screen pass, but uh, very good perspective. The madness always, as I think we're all quickly quickly learning with old Lincoln Riley. Yes, yes. Uh, all right, well, let's move on. I, I wanted to ask you another question, and it's we're only two games in, but is there any opinion you had about this team in the preseason that has already changed after two games? Yeah, I'll get pretty specific. I thought uh, Malcolm Epps or Lake McCree would have a big role in this offense. I knew you had a lot of receivers, but just Lincoln Rally's history uh, with developing tight ends. I mean, look no further than, you know, the number one fantasy tight end right now in, in the NFL. Mark Andrews, uh, you know, that's a guy that Lincoln Rally developed and utilized, and he had a long list of tight ends. Through two weeks, the tight ends have a very small role in this offense, which is fine. I mean, those of you guys that have been listening to this podcast, I was I was a big proponent of utilizing four receivers the past four years when those are your best playmakers. But I do think if there's a world where you need to run, uh, need to have a game where you run the rock more, uh, maybe that's an area of, of concern for, for USC, but... That's that's one thing that's changed for me. I thought the the tight ends would have a much larger role in this offense, even if it was a third option type of deal. Um, I was excited about Lake McCree, what we saw at the end of last year, and Malcolm Epps, obviously his frame and, and upside. It's not to say those guys can't do it, but I think what is obvious after two weeks is there's a large gap in terms of uh, productivity um, from you know receiver three and receiver four to that tight end room. And when those tight ends are in there, it feels like just kind of a, a keep you honest wrinkle yeah. um, and waiting for the next time the receivers can get involved. Great point. Great point. Mine is that I did not think that there was any way that Jordan Addison could come close to approximating his stats from last year at Pitt. Ooh, I like that. Or, I like that. Or, or that he'd have a chance to even be in the Bolitnikoff conversation again. And you know what? I'm already – changing that opinion through two games, 226 receiving yards, four touchdowns ranks tied for 16th nationally in yards tied for third in touchdowns. And obviously the first game was quieter. So this game really bumped those stats way up and just watching him, watching how smooth he is watching how there doesn't seem to be any gap of uh, confidence or connectivity between he and Caleb Williams. They seem to be totally on the same page at this point. 
I am now thinking that anything is possible for Jordan Addison and that he is it's it's less a 1A 1B to me now and it's a uh, clear uh, one uh, two with him and Mario Williams and I think they're going to feed him big time every week and there's so much you can do with him you can do it in the screen game like we just broke down you can do it on those deep posts you can just feed him slants across the middle he's just so smooth and reliable that uh, anything is possible and Lincoln does a great job moving him around it's one thing uh, it's easy to double a receiver when he's you know you, you, when you know where to expect him when you know he can, oh, he's always going to be on the outside or you know he likes running this route and that route Lincoln's moving Jordan Addison around like we talked about my favorite play was a post route in the slide he's also getting involved outside I think uh, you know you're, you're, you're spot on and I also think teams are not going to have the luxury of being like hey we can double number three and take our chances with other guys like I'm sure that's what he got last year at Pitt right um, and he still put up all those numbers this year at, at, uh, at SC Man, if you double him, you're going to get even more torched by all these other guys. I think you're going to have to play him more straight up, even though he is that good. Yeah, and when when all the news broke about him transferring from Pitt and that USC was the favorite destination, I was saying like they don't they don't need Jordan Addison. I mean, they have all these guys who are so deep at receiver anyway. That would just be a luxury. They don't need Jordan Addison. No, now I see how it makes a total difference in this team, and I just didn't fully appreciate how great he, he is, uh, I do now. That said, Mario Williams, really good. And on his touchdown down the sideline where he just got the ball with a little bit of space and just made everyone miss, really showed his elite athleticism and his, his potential. So certainly very high on Mario Williams. But I just think I now see Jordan Addison's true greatness for what it is. Um, the defense, different story, different story. Definitely a work in progress. We knew that. But... Um, through a quarter and a half on Saturday, Stanford had 297 yards and had, had kind of uh, botched two chances inside the five-yard line with the interception from Makai Blackman and the fumble that uh, Max Williams forced. So this could have been a real shootout of a game if not for those turnovers. So the defense still very much a concern. What's your overall takeaway on that side? Yeah, defense is opportunistic. I think, you know, the last segment was about what surprised us or what's changed. I think for me, one thing that has not changed is, you know, the concern up front defensive line wise, especially on the inside, but actually I'll loop that in on the outside. I think, you know, Tuli Tuikolotu, love him. But outside of that, especially with Romello height being down, like that group, the edge group got a lot more, uh, a lot thinner. Um, you're not seeing that physicality from Corey Foreman or like him having an impact. I like what I saw from Solomon Bird, but you know, that group as a whole, defensive line, I, I spoke uh, with Lincoln Riley tonight. We're, we're recording this on a Monday, and uh, I call it the X Factor, and I think that's the case. Uh, that defensive line is an X Factor, so that jumps out to me as a concern long term. But then again, you know, if we're in an outscore you mode, I think uh, you can survive the Pac-12 in large part with that mentality, maybe outside of Utah um, with that approach. But other guys, I mean, Eric Gentry, I think we saw why he's that middle linebacker and why they love him at that position. It's different, but he's he, he puts so much pressure on the offense from a uh, pass perspective. That first Max Williams interception, like that's a result of having a six-six middle linebacker, and you're not able to pick apart the middle of the defense like you are against most 
relatively unathletic middle linebackers. Um, and then his physicality I'm impressed with. So love Gentry, love Triple O2. Uh, Max Williams getting active. I think that safety position, you wonder a little bit about the physicality long-term. If you're really getting up against a true right attack, that's not Stanford this year. But like those in the corners, uh, I'm, I'm pleased with the corners. I mean, I think you sense defensively that uh, they really like um, they really like their corners. They trust their corners. And as a result, you're able to free up more bodies to do more things in the front seven when you're able to, you know, put uh, put trust in your corners to, to take care of business on the outside. So there's pieces to work with. I think that the defense is doing good things, but by no means is it a unit that's going to go out there and win you a football game on their own. It's not, but I still think it will get better as the season goes along. And I think it would be entirely unfair to say that it's right where it left off last year. It's not I, – I this is a better tackling team. This is a more physical team at positions. But – I don't think the turnovers are a fluke. I mean, you know, four a game is maybe a bit much. They're, you know, right near the top of the country and forcing turnovers uh, through two weeks. But this is Alex Grinch's whole mentality is to just be relentless and and strain to the ball, as he says, and be in position to make these plays. I talked to a couple of his former Washington State defensive players when he when he arrived there as a first-time coordinator – and they said one of the first meetings they had with him, he had, I don't know if it was a PowerPoint presentation or whatever, but he had a presentation where he said, if we average a, a, a two, a plus two turnover differential per game, you will win nine games. You will get to a bowl game. This, this, this. The guy I talked to said our last play of the regular season was a, an interception that put us at that, that plus two margin for the year. And we won nine games and went to a bowl game. And he was like, it was just surreal the way he, he kind of laid it out. That's his whole mentality is that, that his defense is built on, on those kind of game-changing plays that can offset everything else. So I, I think that we're going to see that all season, not for a game, but I don't think it's a total fluke. So for that reason, for the tackling, I think this defense has advanced since last year. It just still has a long ways to go. I think confidence is going to be a big uh, big factor in that. I mean, it sounds uh, cliche and kind of like coach talk, but you have those turnovers, you get momentum on your side, guys start playing more confident, you're not, you know, feeling like you're up against the wall all the time, and you're able to play play free when you have an offense where you feel like they can score on every single drive. Like, that matters from a psychological standpoint for the defense, and there's pieces there. There's a lot of talent. Um, I think it's just about some of those uh, – you know, key players up front turn the corner and staying healthy, of course. And then, uh, like you said, continuing to lead the conference in, uh, in turnovers. Well, real quick, let's get into the matchup this week. This is a shorter segment with Max this week because we do have more coming on the podcast. And it's not a Pac-12 matchup this week, so we're not going to go too deep into the opponent. But USC is back in the Coliseum, host Fresno State on Saturday. Lincoln Riley already put his plug into the fans saying this is a pretty fun team. You might want to come out and watch them. Uh, I don't know how, how long he's going to remain patient with, you know, half empty Coliseum. I think he's going to get a little more antsy each and every week, but, but hopefully if it's a cooler a day and they're the number seven team in the country, maybe we start to see that real uh, response to what this team's doing and start to see a fuller Coliseum, but the matchup max with Fresno state, they're one-on-one. Played one of the most exciting games of the weekend, losing 35-32 to Oregon State. They were 
up 32-29 after scoring with a minute and five left that Oregon State drove down and scored in the final seconds to steal that game. What jumps out to you about this Fresno State team coached by Jeff Tedford, who is obviously a familiar name to Pac-12 football fans? Yeah, Trojan fans, go back and watch that game. Uh, you got Fresno State this upcoming week and then Oregon State after the fact. And those those two uh, faced off against each other, and it was an absolute thriller. Um, gutsy call by Oregon State, just a great football game in general. But, uh, yeah, with Fresno State, um, it all starts with their quarterback, Jake Hayner. Uh, and a lot of Pac-12 fans saw him last year when Fresno State uh, put a whooping on the Pac-12 Pac-12 teams started at Washington, was beat out by Jacob Eason, forced to transfer to Fresno State with a chip on his shoulder, and he's good. He's not as good as Caleb Williams, but of the other quarterbacks that SC is going to face this year, he doesn't take a backseat to any of them. Um, I think he'll have a shot to he'll, – he'll, he'll be in an NFL camp next year. Um, whether he'll make a team, we'll see. But um, he's legit, and they give him the keys to the car. I, I'd expect him to throw the ball a lot. He threw the ball 45 times against Oregon State. I think he'll be right around there against SC, and he's a, he's a stud. His receivers, leading receiver last week was Nico Remigio. SC fans will remember him. He was Cal Slot the past couple of years, yep. transferred to Fresno State. Um, Ty Jones is another really good receiver for Fresno State, the former Washington transfer. So they have some Pac-12 dudes there. J- Jordan Mims, Jalen Cropper, two other guys that are uh, – Fresno State dudes didn't didn't transfer, uh, but also productive. So pass game, I think Fresno State, you know, is is as good as anyone SC is going to face this year. I'm making I'm betting in my head as I say that, but that's true. And then defensively, um, you do not look at the defense and 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 say, oh my gosh, they can't get it done there, or oh wow, they're uh, they have a deficit in talent at this position. Visually, you know, they they, they pass the eye check. They're going to be uh, going to be active. Don't get me wrong; it's still a Mountain West team, but I think they're going to keep SC's offense uh, honest. I think they're going to struggle, <laughs> but I think you know it's not just going to be a, a field day per se for SC like it was maybe at, at Rice or something like that. One defensive player worth noting: uh, former USC Trojan Raymond Scott is their uh, their inside linebacker. Hey. Uh, He's uh, in rotation for them, so keep out for number one uh, on the defense for the Bulldogs. Good stuff. Uh, Jordan Mims is kind of a stud at running back just from what I've tracked. He had 122 yards and two touchdowns last week. And one more point on Hayner. Uh, I guess he made comments Monday that he wanted a USC scholarship, wasn't given one, wasn't big enough or fast enough or strong enough arm or, or whatever, and uh, is kind of – motivated about getting a chance to play in the Coliseum. So um, that's a storyline to keep in mind. Max, predictions as always, do you have one for Saturday? Yeah, let's see here. I'll go um, I'll go 31 I'll go 31 to 45 SC. 31-45 SC. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm going to go 41 to 20 and we'll see what happens, and we'll come back next week with a, a full Max segment as we break down this game and preview that Oregon State matchup. We will uh, get deep into the matchup for that game next week. But always great to have you on. We appreciate it, Max. Appreciate the perspective. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Ryan. Okay, next on to the show, back on to the show. Good friend of mine, great USC beat writer for the Orange County Register, Adam Grossbard, joins us. Adam, how are you? Good, Ryan. How about you? 
Doing great. Doing great. Uh, didn't think I was going to be covering the number seven team in the country at this point. Does it feel to you like you're covering a, a top ten uh, bona fide playoff contender right now? Uh, I, it does feel like we're covering a playoff contender. Um, you know, USC has answered some questions on the defense. I'm still a little curious. I'm sure we'll get into it, how they do against an experienced team like Fresno State that's a little safer with the ball. Um, that'll be very interesting to see this coming weekend. But that being said, this defense is number one in turnover margin. This defense is number three in sacks in the nation. Yep. Um, this defense does a lot of things that wins ball games. I think they're number nine in tackles for loss. They are doing a lot of things that will win a lot of ball games. And on top of that, Notre Dame doesn't look very good. Utah, more questions than there were prior to the season. Um, you know, I don't think UCLA necessarily looks like the dominant type of division winner that, you know, you might have thought they could have been prior to the season. The path to an undefeated season looks a lot clearer for USC right now than it did before. And USC is one of those teams that if they go undefeated, they're going to be in the playoffs. So, yeah, you have to look at this team as like an actual team that's contending to make a playoff at this point. It's, it's really wild. And I guess I shouldn't be surprised because I was as bullish as anybody about this team's outlook. It's just to, to see it in print, to, to say it out loud, number seven team in the country – and the way you just spelled it out in that if you look at the rest of the schedule, there is a very clear path to this being a potentially just elite, maybe undefeated, maybe playoff season. Uh, I wrote a column Sunday pretty much based around Lincoln Riley's comment after the game, just look at 12 months ago. And as we discussed in the first part of this podcast, there's not a single USC fan 12 months ago who could have even envisioned this possibility. So it's I guess I'm just kind of – getting used to the, the the surrealness of it all and accepting it as reality. To this point of the season, Adam, what's been your biggest surprise overall? I think just how quick it's been. Yeah. Because like you said, 12 months ago, and even after they put this team together, you were like, you got to give them a few weeks. It's going to take some time to coalesce. 12 months ago, it was like, whoever the new coach is is going to have a lot of leeway just because everyone, all the fans are going to look at it from the perspective of, you know, this is going to be a two- or three-year roster rebuild, but this team really used the transfer portal in a really smart way um, beyond just getting obscenely talented people like Caleb Williams and Jordan Addison and then adding guys who were from really good teams but weren't necessarily being used to their fullest potential like Shane Lee. They also added a lot of guys who had like real legitimate Pac-12 experience from a bunch of different schools. And I, if I was talking with Makai Blackman today and asked him about his interception in the end zone on Saturday against Stanford, and he said in 2020 against Stanford, they ran that same play at him twice in the end zone, and he knew exactly what was coming and he was ready for it. And that's just, you know, to have that on a team full of guys who were not in Cardinal and Gold last year, you know, it's really amazing how they put this roster together and then how quickly it's all come together to be, like, really good winning football. Where the questions surrounding this team 
yeah, the, to your point, I've been just amazed on the offensive side how everything is in perfect harmony or or seems that way to us. Lincoln Riley keeps saying, well, there's we can be a lot better, we can fix this, we can fix that. It looks like it's totally in sync. And you think that Jordan Addison didn't, didn't get here until the summer. The rest of these guys can get there in the spring. Defensively, it's really hard to to know, like, when there's a missed assignment or when the player's in the wrong gap, unless you know what the play call is. So it's harder to break that down. And certainly, you know, with the yards they're giving up, there's clearly a long way to go there. But when I say, when I see people say, well, the defense is the same as last year, I balk at that because for all the stats you mentioned, this defense last year was not capable of this. They weren't forcing turnovers like this. They weren't uh, opportunistic. They weren't in the right spots. They weren't in the backfield this much. I think we've already seen an immense improvement on the defense. It's it, and it's not going to get all the way this year. It's not going to be a top ten defense this year, and never should have been expected to be. But I think this defense has improved, and that it has an identity where it didn't have one last year. I agree. I do think you know the nine turnovers. Four of them are tipped interceptions, which is to an extent sheer dumb luck. Sure. But the, the forcing of fumbles, and as you said, being in the right place at the right time, and bringing the ball in. Like, there, there can be a tipped ball that, you know, how many defensive backs, like the old joke is the defensive back is a receiver without hands. They, they've been executing and doing what they need to do to bring in those tipped balls. Um, but, like, to Lincoln's point, talking about there being need for improvement, in, in that Stanford game in the second half, there were a couple times on the offensive side where you saw, you know, Caleb Williams throwing to a different point than where the receiver actually wound up. There were a couple of discrepancies there where they weren't necessarily on the same page, but they still scored 41 points easily. Yeah. Um, you know, they still have the potential to improve on that side of the ball as they play together more, as they understand exactly where Caleb wants them in a certain situation when they're reading the defensive alignments and things like that. You know, they're, they're, they're going to get better. These receivers are going to understand their quarterback to a much better extent as they get deeper into the season what the actual ceiling is. And they're already number seven in the country. I think I was just blinded by that first half and five straight touchdown drives without so much as a, as a third down. I mean, it was just, you know, surgical precision. And I, I think it's so hard for any team to play a complete game at, at peak form. I know that's every coach's goal and what you strive for, but how many times do we ever see it where one side of the ball is uh, at their absolute maximum potential for four quarters? So, you know, I, I've been thoroughly impressed with the offense. But I wanted to have you on because we both wrote about Max Williams after this game. And it's one of the great stories on this team. And I wanted uh, to kind of have you share what, what impresses you about his story. Obviously, my readers have read what I've written, but why was he kind of the focal point for you coming off that game? I mean, it's, it's just how hard is it to come back from one ACL tear, let alone two? And, to, you know, we, we were there. We were able to watch a lot more of practice last year than we were than we are this year and in doing so we were there every day just watching him working in the little corner of the field over and over and over again and without fail he was just running 
and running and running. And it seems, you know, the sense from USC was like there was concern that he might hurt himself because he was trying so hard to get back. Um, And there was a sense that he wanted to be back for the bowl game and he had to be reined in. Not that there ended up being a bowl game anyways, but he needs to be reined in and told like, hey man, it's better for you long term if you slow play this. He just wanted to be out there on the field so badly. And to see him come up with that interception, to have seven tackles, to have the forced fumble in the red zone, like he, it's really remarkable. And it was really cool just to see two guys who weren't there for his recovery last year, Lincoln and Caleb, both interrupt the press conference and say like, hey, I have something to add about Max. Yep. I want to talk about how hard he's been working and, you know, Lincoln talking about how, no surprise to anyone who's covered him long enough, but he played through an injury in the spring that required surgery, and he decided he'd rather play through it, get the spring camp with the new staff, get as many reps as possible, and then take a break. Like, it really is something else that he is where he is now, and, you know, it, you can tell how much he, it means to him, even if he's not going to say it out loud. Yeah, it's, it's really cool to see it's a, haven't been around the program for a couple of years. Yeah, that's the neat thing about Max is that he's just always just kind of this just laid back, low key guy. And, you know, he had the platform, the stage on Saturday to really kind of trumpet his own story. And he didn't. He gave a very basic response, but he doesn't have to because everyone else is so happy to talk about it. And to your point about Lincoln and Caleb chiming in there and wanting to make their point, I've said this in many forms over the last couple of years, but he has just over and over again been one of those guys who immediately impresses a new staff. When the last defensive staff came in, like he, he was like the first guy who they were just smitten by. And they're like, we love coaching this kid. And then they leave and you wonder, is that going to hurt Max? He was so well positioned with that staff. No, he comes in and in the spring, like a week into the spring, Alex Grinch goes, we need more Max Williams here. So, that's right. Yeah. So, so he, he just he just has that way of of leaving that impression, and it's because he's a high football IQ guy. Always has been. That was one of the selling points out of high school. He is a, a workaholic and coachable, and, and everything you want on the team. Yeah. Going back to last year, like you mentioned, he would just be running circles around the field nonstop. Like not like oh, I'm going to do five laps. No, I'm going to run the entire practice around the field until this knee gets back to 100 percent and I don't know what they're called. I think they, I think they did ran the numbers because yeah. they all tracked those guys, and he always came up having run the most during practice, even though he didn't have pads on. He couldn't run a single drill. He's just running. That was one of my favorite anecdotes from last year was, was us learning that. They wear those those vests or whatever you would call them. Is it, is it catapult or something that tracks the heart? Catapult, yeah. Yeah, tracks the heart rate and everything else. And – Without fail, most days, Max Williams was the most active player on the field, and he wasn't even technically on the field. So that just really speaks to him. And he actually, you know, I I talked to his family in the spring for a follow-up, and he was cleared to play for the Arizona State game last November, which would have been like six and a half months after his surgery. And, and And that had been his goal. He wanted to get back and play against his brother who plays for the Sun Devils. And then, you know, the doctors and the team sat down and talked to him, and they're like, you know, 
it's not really worth it. Like it's this is a lost season. Why don't you just put everything you have into the next year and it'll be your year? And he begrudgingly embraced that. And what's cool and the reason why you know it, it was worth writing about this week is that it's not just a novelty story of oh the guy's been through a lot and he came back and got back on the field. Now he got back on the field and is making a huge impact. He's third on the defense in snaps played. He's PFF's third highest graded USC defender. And you mentioned the two plays from last week. The interception, yeah, that's being in the right spot at the right time. But that that forced fumble, 5'8", five, 5'9", five, Max Williams threw his entire body at a charging E.J. Smith to the point where E.J. Smith's momentum stopped in its tracks. And, of course, he, he put his you know shoulder and helmet in the right spot to jar the ball out. But the fact that he, he stopped his forward progress like instantly – just shows the tenacity he plays with. So I think everyone knows his story, but I wanted to give it more of a spotlight in case people haven't read the stories and, and don't really know uh, all the details that goes, go into it. It's really one of the best stories on this team. Moving on, you, you wrote about Shane Lee before the season, and I wanted to give you a chance to kind of spotlight that story. And you talked to his dad and got in-depth with his story. What struck you about the Shane Lee story? that he's always kind of been exactly who he is, which like since he's been at USC has been like a very, you know, he's learning how to be a vocal leader, but he's really just a lead by example guy. Yeah. And the best story I got was from his dad. Uh, Shane is like in middle school and there's a kid in one of his classes who is making trouble. Just like constantly disrupting class. And Shane goes, and just sits down next to the kid and over the next several weeks just kind of like shows him how to you know behave and act and be the be the right kind of kid in class and by the time parent teacher conferences roll around um the teacher tells shane's parents that this kid has just completely stopped misbehaving because of shane's example <laughs> And I go and I ask Shane about it. He's like, I don't remember that at all. Sure. It's like classic. But so to see, like, he's really always been that guy who tries to guide people in the right direction. But the thing that he was challenged to do at USC was to be vocal. And he's really learned how to be that guy. Um, You know, day two or three on campus and they're having to, accountability session in the locker room after it waits and Shane gets up and speaks in front of the whole group. This is the story Lincoln Riley told and it's um, really been something else and it's really cool just to see, you know, everyone kind of knew coming in, he's like, this was a freshman All-American who just couldn't play. He couldn't crack the lineup at Alabama his next two seasons. And so there was kind of a question like, is he you know, really the answer at linebacker that USC's been waiting for. In game one, he was just all over the place with tackles for losses and his pick six. And he was really, it's cool to see him getting his moment to play after, you know, he really took his time at Alabama, didn't get his opportunity and finally went searching for somewhere else and, you know, be team captain and be doing what he's doing. You know, he's a good kid. It's really cool to see. To your point, he would never say this, but it felt like he just kind of let out two years of pent-up frustration out in that first game. 
and mm-hmm. we're waiting for that chance. And and to, to that anecdote you told that Lincoln Riley shared with us about that, uh, you know, one of his first days on campus, he he goes, you know, he, he barely even knows anybody yet. You know, this team doesn't even know each other's names yet across the board. And when he spoke, just like you could just see it in everyone's eyes that they stopped and listened. He just has that gravitas about him, and you know, you can get lost in in the in the vortex of cliches and stuff. And people talk about leadership. What does leadership mean? It's it's applied a lot of times. It's forced sometimes. But we heard it all spring from his teammates, from his coaches. Just like everyone had a way of kind of qualifying why he's a leader. I recall talking to Rajon Davis in the spring, and he was like, "Oh yeah, no, no, Shane's the guy. Like whatever he says, I'm I'm learning a ton from him." And it just you can just tell the respect that, that is there across the board, and it probably is because of the way he carries himself and because he's just all about the business. He's he's not a self promoter in any way. He just works. He just works and works and works, and it's hard not to notice that. I guess if you're around it every day. Yeah, I remember. Uh, I think I used this in the story, but Rajon in the spring saying like the reason he lost ten pounds over the off season was after Shane Lee got there and just kind of showed him how to do his thing. It was really cool talking to all the teammates about Shane in the spring, like kind of you know the opposite of Max Williams impressing the new coaching staff. It was Shane Lee impressing the old players who had already been there. You know, even guys like Raylan Goforth, who are the same age as Shane, and you could just see his face light up when you asked him about Shane. And it was really something else to see how quickly he won over that locker room. And, you know, it wasn't really a surprise when he was named captain, but it's cool to see anyways. Yeah, and and for those reasons, that goes back to my initial point of why I think this defense is advanced is because you have guys like that, and you you have guys with just, so much more upside than I think we had at some spots last year uh, across the board. Of course, you know, Tuli Tui Pelotu as a junior is, is going to probably have his best season yet. Uh, Shane Lee and Eric Gentry, who just has unlimited potential uh, at inside linebacker there, is, is a vast upgrade over the tandems of recent years. Makai Blackman may be better than any cornerback they've started the last few years. Um, it's, it's still early, and I want to see more of him, but so far, so good. So, uh, you know, Kalen Bullock, I think, has a chance to be as good as anybody in the country at his position. So there's plenty of reason to believe this defense can keep getting better. I don't think it will be a top 20 defense in the country, but it doesn't have to be with, with the offense they have that we've seen through two games. And I don't think there's any fluke in that whatsoever. Sure, it was it was Rice and a Stanford team picked to finish eighth in the conference, but I just don't think there's any – any smoke and mirrors or, or, or any fluke to what they're doing offensively with the talent they have and, and watching Riley as a play caller and, and some of the uh, elaborate things he draws up. And we, we had Max Brown on the first segment kind of breaking down some of his favorite play calls. I think this team is for real. I think they can win with their offense and just hope to get better and better defensively incrementally as the year goes on. Yeah, I completely agree. I just, I am very curious to see. I don't expect Fresno State to have four turnovers on Saturday. Right. I think we're going to see a much more disciplined team. I don't think we're going to see those tick balls. Um, that's a much better receiving core than they faced, a much better quarterback than they faced, all due respect to Tanner McKee. But um, so I'm going to be very curious because this defense gives up a lot of yards. 
and they've gotten very, they've done, I'm not going to say they got lucky. They've done really, really well in the red zone to prevent scores. And Shane Lee was talking today about how that's really all that matters. I don't care how many yards as long as we don't give up points. This Fresno State team is really going to test that. We're really going to see like what this defense is made of in those instances when they're not able to create the turnovers. Can they just get a stop on fourth down? Can they just get a stop at third down at the 40? Like, can they, you know, force a punt? Um, there hasn't been a lot of punting in these games. But I- I'll be curious to see that. But to your point, I don't think it's going to matter because the offense is going to score 50 points or somewhere in that territory. And, uh, you know, if Fresno State wins the coin toss, elects to receive and doesn't score, they're already behind the eight ball in this game. Yeah. Because that's how efficient this USC offense has been, I think. It's either 9 or 11, but that's how many drives to start his USC career Caleb Williams led and scored points. Wow. Like it took either 10 or 12 drives before Caleb Williams led a drive that did not result in points. You know, this team is really, really good. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 it's crazy to think, but... I think we're going to be covering a team much later into December and possibly into January than we've been used to. Well, I'm, I think it's refreshing uh, to hear everyone backing my own bullishness for this team. And I've, I've been I've been <laughs> criticized and being too optimistic or, or, or too positive about things. And I just call it like I see it. And I think everyone is now seeing what I see. No, no I kid. I kid. But um, I, I did expect. <laughs> yeah, how's that Keaton Stock doing, brother? Well, you, you can't account for injuries. That's just a tough break for him. So I don't, I'm not going to admit defeat on that one. But uh, yeah, there are a few there are a few debates lingering this season outside of the USC realm between myself and some other writers on on the beat that uh, will be validated one way or the other as things play out. But yeah, I'm I'm not the one driving the hype train here. I, th- I think the train's driving itself. And maybe even more so than than I thought, just this quickly. I, I do think that people may be overlooking Fresno State just a little bit and thinking, okay, well, they had the big conference road game. Now this is another tune-up before they get ready for Oregon State. I'm with you. I think this is going to be a very just well-coached, uh, organized, disciplined team. And that's kind of the way Lincoln Riley framed them on Tuesday and talking about it. I don't think that's going to matter, like you said, for the USC offense. But I do think that it could be a great test for the defense. They have some real playmakers on this team. Obviously, Hayner at quarterback, Mims at running back. So it's very much a test, but we'll see what happens there. My curiosity is is the crowd, is the Coliseum. We had the excuse of the oppressive heat for the opener as to why we were still looking at a half-empty Coliseum, what do you think happens now that USC is number seven, is being talked about uh, in the ways that we just talked about them? Do, do you think we actually get a real USC football crowd Saturday? It's a good question. It's a good question. I think we're going to see more people. I think a 7.30 start is going to keep some people away or have some people leave early, even if the game is still close. Yeah. That being said... It's still Fresno State. Um, I, I don't think, you know, I'd have to look at the home schedule to like maybe Arizona State would be a big one. But I, I think, you know, 
there's still a thing with USC fans and just kind of LA fans in general. I'm speaking as an LA native here, so don't get too angry at me. But LA fans like to show up for the big game, but not necessarily against a lesser opponent. You know, I think that's been the case throughout the last 10 years of LA sports history. Um, so I don't know, to be completely honest. I have no idea. It's a little different in that we, you know, there's only so many games you can go to as a college football fan during the year. You know, it's a much more limited supply. So to answer your question, I don't know. I'm not expecting a sellout. Though. Yeah. I don't know when they hit that magic number. I would imagine it happens, some, especially if this team stays undefeated. It's going to happen in October or November for sure. Right. But I, I don't think this is the this is the crowd. I'm with you. I'm I'm also curious to see how Lincoln Riley's patience for that starts to d- deteriorate and wane as the the weeks go on. You know, he, he said everything right after the first game. He goes, "Oh, you know, we got to earn it. There's a lot to do in this town. We got to give people a reason to come out." After the Stanford win, he kind of got his plug in saying, this is a fun team to watch. You might not want to miss this one. If it's another lackluster crowd Saturday, I can see him making another little little comment to try and wake up the fan base. And, and the more it goes along, I think he'll be surprised if they get halfway through this thing and they don't have those crowds yet because he's used to playing in front of full stadiums. I, I think he'll get there eventually, but I'm very curious about how, how long it takes to get there. Just last topic, Adam, before we let you go. We talked about some of the, the better stories on this team. Is there one guy that you think maybe hasn't made a ton of noise just yet that could be a pivotal impact guy the rest of the way if things break right? Is, it, is there one guy you're kind of focused on still to see if he emerges or, or elevates in a certain way? It's huh. a good question. Um, I mean, I guess I would have to say – just as someone who hasn't even played yet, so it's a little tough, but I am very curious to see what happens when Domani Jackson is healthy. Yep. Um, you know, obviously all the hype that he had coming into the season, I don't think that you have, you have some, you know, some young guys who are doing well at corner at the opposite of Mackay. Um, but if Domani's playing well, and looks like the guy he was in high school, I think there's a good chance you could see him take over that starting job before the season's over. I think he'll get every chance whenever he does return to the field, and, and it seems like it's maybe getting closer, but whenever he does, I think he'll be immediately put in the rotation, and then from there it'll be based on, on how he does with those game reps. But, yeah, he's definitely the guy, and then the Corey Foreman storyline will just never disappear. So, well, I, I'm not even saying – it, so I didn't say it. it. It has to be said, especially as we had Lincoln Riley acknowledge after practice Tuesday that Romello Height is battling a shoulder injury, is going to be shut down for a few days. He didn't rule him out for the game, but uh, we saw Height leave with that shoulder on Saturday looking pretty painful. And obviously Solomon Bird got a lot of snaps and, and kind of stole. Solomon Bird got double the snaps of Corey mm-hmm. Foreman. Yep. So that I mean that that's he was mostly being used in rundowns, rushing situations. Which again, against Stanford, there's going to be more rushing than passing. But he was being used more in rushing situations, which tells me he was out there to give Bird a breather for longer passing downs. 
which is not how anyone expected Corey Foreman to be used at this point in his career. That's a great point and, and very on the nose and astute. And again, I'm not, I'm not going to make any predictions about what he can or can't do or will do, but that storyline is not going away. And if Romello Height is going to miss any time, and, and again, we don't know if he will, but it kind of seems like it may be now or not going to happen this year for Foreman. If, if he can't seize a bigger role with height kind of ailing, then maybe it's we just have to shelve, you know, the the talk of the former five star until next season. But definitely a storyline to monitor. I'm sure we'll have plenty more emerge over the next few weeks. We will definitely get you back on the podcast, Adam. We thank you for your time and insights. Thanks, Ryan. That's going to do it for us this week, at least. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Trojan Talk podcast. Hope you're also checking out Trojansports.com, where uh, myself and our staff are loading up content and stories. But uh, we, we appreciate the support. As always, it's, it's going to be a fun ride this season. So uh, certainly stay tuned into everything, and we'll be back with the next podcast next week, breaking down the Fresno State game, looking ahead to the pivotal early season clash with Oregon State. Um, but let's not jump ahead of things. Let's see what happens with Fresno State this weekend. Should be a good game. Uh, arguably the toughest team that USC has faced this far. We will see what happens and be back with you next week. Thank you.